I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. Yeah, now you're taking my kind of uh Oh, I thought we were going to be dramatic. Well, I, I was sort of semi-dramatic. We were going to be dramatic on this show. All right. This week. Yes, just like all the other Christian yes. talk radio shows. Uh, anyway, uh, if you're not familiar with us, we actually talk and have useful discussions here, so... Regardless of the last 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, this is a new week. We have a new guest with us, uh, Mr. Chris Pinto, who is the writer and director of a new documentary called Eye of the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is also the uh, head of Adullam Films and has been a uh, guest in the past on our show. And we're going to talk today about this planned destiny of America and its evidence in the dollar bill. Yeah. Uh, he's always a good guest. You know what I like about... I, yeah, I like his documentaries. We've made that clear. Right. Uh, if this is your first show, you really should go check out his documentaries, all the stuff that he's done previously, as well as this right. this, this new one. Um, but you know what I like about him is that he's just, man, he's good on our show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He um, He's an excellent speaker. He can give a ready defense of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of the best men that I know who can readily uh, produce the word. On occasion, no matter what the topic of discussion. Well, boy, and I tell you, he could be, he's like, he's a hoss when it comes to the Bible. He's the lead, he's the lead horse. I'm sure he appreciates that. It, well, I, it's meant in respect. Right, right. I, I have a lot of respect for his Bible knowledge. He is too. If yeah. I was surrounded by a bunch of occultists, I'd want like, him to be there. Chris Pinto! Dun, dun, dun! Exactly. Swings in on a rope. Well, that's a good intro for Brother Chris. Yeah. With no further ado, here is Brother Chris Pinto. Uh, we're going to talk about his new documentary, Eye of the Phoenix, and they'll be right back to discuss it here on Future Quake. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And we are here with a guest who we've had several times, a good yeah. friend of the show who mm-hmm. always has some compelling new work that he's bringing for us to consider, and tonight is no exception. We have Chris Pinto who is the writer and director of Eye of the Phoenix, a new production of his production company, Dellum Films. And we're going to talk tonight about the topic of the planned destiny of America and its evidence on the dollar bill. And uh, Chris Pinto, I just want to tell you, it's great to have you back on the Future Quake show again in your fourth visit with us. Praise the Lord. I am glad to be back, uh, Doc Future, and, and you too, Tom. Yeah, um, it's good to have you. It is always good to be on the show, definitely. Well, you you have become a fixture here on the show, and I appreciate you being loyal to us. I know you hang out with some uh, pretty high-level dudes mm-hmm. now, you know, like Dr. Monteith. And, yeah, making and time for us little ones. Any, <laughs> anything that has religion and God on it has your uh, documentary somehow festooned on the website. So um, you, you just see them just like Kilroy, just anywhere we find evidence <laughs> of your production. So, well, uh, praise the Lord. It's a privilege for us to actually have you on our show and for you being loyal to our show. Well, um, since you've been on our show a number of times before, I thought we wouldn't bore our listeners with details about your life. So uh, I'd rather refer them to our earlier shows at futurequake.com. So wouldn't you agree with us? 
I think that's yeah. I think that's great. We can mm-hmm. just jump right in. Wouldn't wouldn't want to bore them with your yeah. life story, right? And uh, we'll jump right into our discussion today. So uh, to begin our our descent into the bowels of the mystery concerning the history of our country, uh, can you tell us the purpose of this latest installment called Eye of the Phoenix in your overall America's Mystery documentary series, uh, which heretofore has comprised the New Atlantis and Riddles and Stone? What's what's this new installment all about in the big picture? Well, the new installment, Eye of the Phoenix, Secrets of the Domobile, it, it takes the story of the uh, the secret or untold history of America, I think, a step further and brings it really into the 20th century, uh, brings it into the uh, what, what many researchers believe is probably uh, the, the most significant time in our country's recent history, and that is the whole FDR era. There are some who believe that FDR did more for the advancing of the New World Order than probably any other single leader in our history. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there were just so many things that were accomplished during his administration. And one of them is uh, is the placement of the Great Seal of the United States on the back of the dollar bill and the whole design for the dollar bill. And, and, and this this uh, installment is consistent with the overall theme of your series. It's yet another series of evidence about the, the the pre-planned purpose of our country and its future destiny. Oh, certainly. In fact, we make mention of the very first history that hmm. had been written of the Great Seal by a guy named Charles uh, A. L. Totten in the 19th century, and he wrote apparently a very esoteric uh, piece of work, but it, he believed that the founding of America uh, was the really the founding of America as the new Atlantis that was envisioned by Sir Francis Bacon. And he's writing about it in this context. And uh, we talk about David Ovison, who's a Freemason and deeply involved in esoteric occult doctrine. Uh, he writes about Nostradamus and astrology and all this other kind of stuff and believes in past lives. I had a chance to interview Ovison over the phone a couple of years ago, and he's about as you know he's a very nice man, but very deeply involved in occultism. Uh, and we've gotten confirmation from the uh, the Masonic Lodge in Washington D.C. that he is a Freemason. And the reason I bring that up is some of the Masonic leadership will argue, you know, that that. Uh, they, they don't necessarily agree with his writings and so on, because he's he's pointing out the Masonic symbolism mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. and on mm-hmm. the dollar bill. Now you you, I, you talked about that in Riddles and Stone quite a bit as well too. Established who he was and what his credentials were, who who, who his real affiliation was with. Correct. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and he's in, he's endorsed by some of the top leadership in Scottish Rite Masonry. So I, I think he's a very significant author. Well, let, let, me, let me make sure that we make this clear up front with our listeners if they're not familiar with your work. In, in your productions, like Eye of the Phoenix, you will share with the audience what the occult community uh, or pagan community, whatever it may be, what they actually believe and what they read into these things, what they're doing, their activities. You're not endorsing them. That, that they're true or valid or whatever, sometimes they may be based upon some truth. But the key thing is that they actually believe in all of this, and this motivates them to make decisions that affect all of us, correct? Hmm. Absolutely. I think that's the key to understanding this stuff. You know, obviously, as a Christian, I don't buy into their, their teachings or their philosophies and so on. And uh, some of the debates you'll get into with people when you try to present the information to them 
is they'll look at some of the uh, you know some of the symbols, uh, like the dollar bill is a classic example. So there there are Christian leaders who insist that these are uh, symbols that represent our godly Christian heritage, uh, which I mean nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, but they'll they'll insist on that, and then when you point things out to them, they'll say, oh well, well you don't know, et cetera, and so on. Um, and then they debate about it. So this is why in the research that I do, we go into their own writings. We examine the writings of those who believe in these symbols and so on and who embrace them as representative of these secret arcane groups. And so we're communicating not what we believe about these symbols, but what they believe about these symbols. Mm -hmm. And we show it to you. We document it for you. So you can you can understand where the information mm -hmm. comes from, and also in many cases what the Bible has to say about these things as well too, mm -hmm. or interpreting oh, the significance of it as well. Uh, go, going back in in history, uh, since we're talking about history and the ramifications today, let's go back even farther uh, than the time of FDR. I, I know that the the seal of the United States and um, its modern day embodiment on the face of the dollar bill has a uh, based upon your uh, documentary and other resources has a murky and very mysterious history involving our founding fathers. Can you tell us about that strange legend and its origin? Well, the strange legend uh, is it's, it's very interesting. The story goes something like this. The founders, the first committee, the first SEAL committee that was uh, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams. Uh, they'd been appointed to develop a great SEAL. They were struggling trying to figure out uh, what... Uh, what they were going to come up with in terms of the symbolism and so on. And so in the midst of all this, supposedly Thomas Jefferson got up and went for a walk outside. And he goes for a walk outside, and it's, it's in the night, and some mysterious figure walks up to him out of nowhere, you know, and he's wearing a, a long black robe with a hood, you know, that almost covers his face, and he has in his hand... Uh, some kind of satchel, and he hands it to Thomas Jefferson. He says to Jefferson, words to the effect of, I know you've been struggling to find a seal. Here's something that will be appropriate. And he just hands him the satchel, and then Jefferson opens it, and inside he supposedly finds the design for the great seal. And then, uh, you know, he, he goes back inside with it. He says, I have it, I have it. And then they go back out to find this mysterious figure, and the guy's gone, and nobody knows who he was or, or whatever. Now, this is a story that's told, and what's very interesting is um, one of our speakers who claims to have been a former Satanist and involved in witchcraft and so on has said for years that that story is told in witches' covens and so on um, as the true origin of the Great Seal, and they believe that some kind of demonic spirit was in this cloak and whatever and came and gave this to Jefferson. Now, I had heard that for years, years in research, and then when I went to interview Dr. Robert Hieronymus when we were working on uh, Riddles and Stone, uh, Dr. Hieronymus, in his book on Founding Fathers' Secret Societies, he actually documents that story. He has a written account of the story. And I had thought that it was just something that was just too extreme and that, you know, 
maybe these people in the occult were just kind of seeing things at at an extreme. And then I find this written account. Now, it's important to say that Dr. Hieronymus, he presents the story. He he has problems with it. He doesn't think it happened this way. Um, And but he just he says he thinks it's an interesting story. Um, and so, again, you look at it and you go, all right, obviously, we don't have any way of proving whether or not such a thing is true. But it's very interesting that there are people right up to this day who believe that the Great Seal comes from this supernatural origin. Now, so, in other words, it has a cloud over it, basically, due to this mystery. Now, did mm. I, I remember seeing in your documentary that uh, John Adams also somehow vouched that he witnessed this as well, too. Is that correct? Well, according to the story, Adams was there when this whole thing happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't have Whoa. any written record of, of Adams talking about it, but if you go to the Adams Memorial in Washington, D.C., they have uh, a figure, a cloaked figure that is carved, that's just sitting there okay, at the memorial with his cloak over uh, its head. And uh, it's kind of hard to tell. It, it looks somewhat like an effeminate figure, might be a woman. Um, uh, but it is this mysterious cloaked figure on the Adams Memorial. Now, mm. why that figure is there, I don't know. Does it have anything to do with this mysterious account? Uh, does somebody know about the account? And when they put the Adams Memorial together, they say, well, let's have a cloaked figure there. I don't know. Well, so, uh, but, but there's no explanation at the site of where the statue is? Nothing else you've seen in the literature that bothers to explain the significance of those characters? Nothing that I've seen. Now, it it could very well be out there, Mm -hmm. um, but but I haven't found it yet. Okay. Well, that's weird. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, let me me just say that these these things, and we're going to talk about a number of them during this interview, are all things taken right out of your documentary. And you're going to hear a bunch of incredible, fantastic things in this documentary. If you've seen other Chris Pinto documentaries, you're not going to be shocked by any of this, uh, only by the fact that he finds so much new material that other people don't find or ways to actually put it all together. So I just want people to know ahead of time that what we're talking about are not things uh, off on a tangent. They're, they're material directly addressed in your documentary. And, and I also intended to say at the beginning that uh, your first documentary I saw, Riddles and Stone, uh, in the in how you piece together what our current uh, our our presidents, including our our just recent president, and uh, the 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 ancient quotations that they're using out of literature and finding what's motivating them completely changed my worldview 180 degrees. Uh, I had certain leanings that were going that way, suspicions, but when I saw what you had done in your work, I completely changed and put on its head how I saw who the good guys and bad guys are to a large degree, and I can't imagine a better compliment to give to a documentary filmmaker than that. Well, you're very kind. You are very kind. Um, yeah, we tried to, you know, when, when, when I first set out, you know, when I, I felt that God was, um, was calling me to do this kind of work, uh, I had initially, as, as a Christian, as a young Christian, as a, you know, somebody who had been, been involved in acting and writing and filmmaking and so on, I, I wanted to do, like, uh, dramatic Christian works, more more fictional type things, and uh, just through a, a series of events, believe the Lord was leading me to develop documentaries, and that's what I've been doing up to now. Did, did uh, a uh, did a cloaked figure come and bring you this material that yeah. you use for a library? <laughs> You'll need this, and it's like a no. camera. Yeah. No, no, no. Okay. But, but you know what? What I've what I've really tried to do is, 
you know, when I first started researching it, there's just so much information out there, and, and half the time you're not sure what to believe. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really try to document what we're talking about and and uh, at least prove the individual pieces of the puzzle, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And then if there's some, you know, if there are question marks there and we're going to uh, have speculations about how, you know, this part might fit with that part, I try to couch mm-hmm. everything in, you know, with question marks. You know, is it possible that this is what's going on, or is that possible, and so on. And let people uh, be discerning and make their own decisions. But but I know she put ample uh, uh, documentation, uh, documents where you get the information, letters, other quotations from people. And, and what is shocking is the information that you can verify that comes from the pens of some of the people who we knew, some of our our leaders in, in re- recent generations, uh, the things that they literally wrote and stood behind shocked so many people who are only used to history that comes out of the textbooks we had in school yeah. and recognize there's a completely different world yeah. that is easily verifiable be- beyond some of the points that are out on the frontiers that you make. Mm-hmm. Just the extremely well-established information is shocking in its own right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love going and and, uh, and showing people different – and there, we could go on for hours and hours about – uh, the the post-American Revolution era and going up into the uh, middle 19th century, and there's all kinds of things that were going on with the founders and issues that they were dealing with that most people have no idea about. Mm-hmm. In Riddles and Stone, one of the things that I, I we point out there is the this whole episode with uh, this guy called the Citizen Genet, and Citizen Genet was a French ambassador who was a member of this Illuminati movement over in Europe. And he comes into America, and he's stirring up the American people to try and get them to support the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Well, the French Revolution wasn't like the American Revolution. It was this bloodbath, and these guys were bloody and ruthless. And George Washington and John Adams did not support what they were doing. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at one point, this guy, Genet, stirs up a crowd uh, I think it was in Philadelphia, but they go and they threaten George Washington. They threaten to drag him out of his house. Uh, and and these guys then, Genet goes on and he inspires the Whiskey Rebellion, apparently, and Washington comes out and, you know, uh, takes the lead of the uh, the army and he puts them down. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that this struggle was going on at this level in early American history. They'll talk about it in vague terms, uh, but they won't talk about the specifics. And that you had a divide there. You had Thomas Jefferson, who supported the Whiskey Rebellion. He supported what mm-hmm. the French revolutionaries were doing. Mm-hmm. So you had this. Uh, you had two radically different views uh, right at the foundation of, uh, of the United States. You know, I would give anything, Chris, to see uh, you writing and producing elementary school historical dramas yeah. for their stage. I would love to see rather than the than the the regular you know Thanksgiving with the little turkeys and pilgrims and you know Washington cutting down the cherry tree. Frank is out there in the in the woods and this guy's give him a big black oh, book. Wouldn't that be wow. great to see elementary school children doing that and the whiskey rebellion and the Jacobins and things like that? So I just want to have you think about that. Maybe you might have a calling there. Yeah. Uh, to, you need to reprogram them at the elementary school level. So yeah, there you go. Uh, in fact, I don't know if you remember Schoolhouse Rock that used to be on in the early 70s oh, on yeah. Saturday morning. You you need to come up with uh, with your own uh, version of that for the Saturday morning cartoons. Mommy, I need a 
forget. <laughs> I'm sorry. We may have gone off. You yeah. probably don't get treated like this on Dr. Stan's show, do you? No, no. Stan's, Stan's pretty straight-laced. He doesn't, he doesn't do fake voices yeah. and things no, like that. No conjunction junction stuff. What's uh, your function? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's geez. the plumber. I've come to fix the sink. Remember that guy? <laughs> no, you got me on that one. Uh, in fact, we've played on our show the uh, the theme about the uh, uh, Constitution, the preamble from uh, Schoolhouse Rock. That's actually been played on Future Quake, believe oh, it or not. Oh, wow. That's right. Uh, wow. Well, speaking of strange characters, um, the star of this episode of your series uh, has to be the enigmatic Nicholas Rorick. Can, right. can you tell us who he is and the central role he has to play in the saga of your historical expose here? Well, I'm you know I'm glad you brought up Rorick because I believe this guy is a very he's I mean he's a, a central figure. If you're going to understand the history of the dollar bill, you have to understand Nicholas Rorick. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's so fascinating is that he has been almost completely removed from our history books. But here's this yes. guy that prior to World War II was an international figure. Uh, who was here in the United States, and he was very closely involved with FDR's White House. He was uh, he was a Russian mystic. He was a painter, and he was recognized internationally for his works of art and his writings and philosophies and so on. And what he was doing was bringing Eastern mysticism to the West, bringing it into uh, the United States and so on. And he was a professor and his wife was this very, you know, erudite figure who's uh, writing all these books and so on. And they had a very, I mean, if you see pictures of these people, they were very uh, eccentric looking. You know, they're very exotic looking. And he's bald and he's got this goatee and everything. And he looks like this very mystical figure. And he was a spiritual mentor to Henry Wallace. And Wallace was the secretary of Agriculture for FDR, and he would go on. Wallace would become the vice president of the United States, and at a and even point, run for president. Yeah, yeah, he he ran for president after that, and the reason his bid for becoming president failed, or at least he was at least from what it seems from the account written in the book uh, Tournament of Shadows, was that it came out during that time that all these letters that he had written to Nicholas Rorick, and they called them the uh, the guru letters because he was writing to Rorick and calling him, you know, dear guru or calling him the guru. Mm. Uh, and it's very clear that Rorick was his spiritual teacher, and he's looking to Rorick as this uh, mentor, and Rorick held all of these very new age views uh, where he's amalgamating all these ancient myths and legends and everything, uh, and and basically teaching the ecumenical one-world religious belief. But he's deeply involved in mysticism. Rorick was uh, a a disciple of Madame H. P. Blavatsky, mm-hmm. who had founded the Theosophical Society, and he and his wife Helena were both members and deeply involved members. Helena, his wife had translated Blavatsky's uh, book, The Secret Doctrine, into Russian. Okay, She did the official Russian translation. And Rorik was said to be like a, uh, a an appropriate successor to Madame Blavatsky, 
I don't think he was officially, but he was this very uh, mystical guy who was heavily involved in politics as well. He's not only hobnobbing with Henry Wallace and uh, well, he met FDR on at least one occasion, uh, and he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And then they have this Rorick Peace Pact that's designed by Henry Wallace and signed by him at the White House with FDR. So he's he's got this kind of influence. You know, he reminded me a lot of, of the, the uh, American equivalent of the Russian Rasputin. This oh, yeah. mystical yeah. figure who had the ear of heads of state with some kind of unknown agenda. Exactly. We're back here at the Future Quake Show with Doc Future. And T-Bionic. And uh, that's our first installment with mm-hmm. Chris Pinto. We don't mess around there. We get into some nitty-gritty stuff just in segment one. Nicholas Rorick. No spin in our wheels. Weirdo. Yeah. Benjamin And yeah, that's something coming from well. us, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, it's a pot calling the kettle black. You on know, the we other don't hand, even we talk never... about Nephilim when we got guys like Nicholas Rorick on. Well, I'll tell you, we got that in for the week. Right yes, on? we did. We yeah. check off that box. Yep, um, Nephilim mentioned. Very strange that guy. He gets into all sorts of stuff. But I'm. It's fascinating that you never hear about him. But at the time, he was this international figure that was right. like around the world. Everybody's, you know, doing stuff. So one of the things that he detailed in the documentary there was that. At uh, his inauguration of his of his museum, there was all these people there from around the world. It's very right. weird. That's right. Yeah. And uh, we're going to have to come back tomorrow and talk more about Nicholas Rorick and mm-hmm. about Chris Pinto. Mm-hmm. But uh, we've got our own Nicholas Rorick, and that's uh, Merv. Merv, would you come in? <laughs> you mystic you, and tell our listeners how they can find out more about Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's it for today. Let's get out of here. Okay, got a great week, right? Yeah. Uh, great week of shows this week, so tune in tomorrow for the next installment of Future Quake. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Bye. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And we are in our second uh, segment of our interview with Chris Pinto. Indeed, sir. Writer and director of Eye of the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And talking about the planned destiny of America and its evidence on the dollar bill. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is uh, weirdness from one day to the next. Plan Arthur. 9 from outer space on this one. Nicholas man, Rourke is just one of the cast of characters. Yeah. Thank goodness we had our old, old friend uh, come back in... Uh, uh, well, I, I tell you, Manly Hall. Yeah, I, I, you know what's weird is that how influential this guy was. I was talking a little bit yesterday. Yeah. You know, we talked yeah. a little bit how influential he was. That's it's weird. I hope we're the Nicholas Rorick's in your life out there, fellow Futurians, uh, without the occult part that. of it. Yeah. 
But uh, with no further ado, here's Brother Chris Pinto renewing our interview, and then we'll be right back to discuss it on Future Quake. And and not only in America, but then over in India, he was close with uh, uh, Nehru, who was the first prime minister of uh, India, and probably knew Gandhi as well, although I haven't made a direct connection. Uh, mm. But they were all, Gandhi, Nehru, Henry Wallace, and Nicholas Rorick were all members of Blavatsky's Theosophical Society. Okay, they were all involved in this. And he was recognized by the leadership of Japan over in China, and then all these Tibetan Buddhist nations, they all received him with high honors and celebrated him as this great man. And in New York, uh, we go in, in a documentary, we take it in New York, and we go to the Rorick Museum, the new one and the old one. The new one is in a smaller building, and it has all of Rorick's paintings and a lot of the artifacts that he collected and brought from different uh, countries throughout the East and so on, and from Russia and whatnot. Uh, and then we take you to the original Rorick Museum, which was this big skyscraper building that was built for him, uh, and it's called the Master Building. And uh, on the cornerstone in the front, there's this black cornerstone, and there's a big M with an R beneath it, M-R, and it stands for Master Rorick because it was built for the master building. He is the master. That's the idea. He's mm -hmm. a spiritual ascended type master, okay, this guru. And uh, one of his disciples, a guy who was also heavily involved in FDR's administration, named Louis Horch, was another disciple, and he was a very wealthy uh, uh, financial guy, and he invested all the money to build this big building so that all of Rorick's paintings could be housed, and they had a lecture hall there and then apartments in the upper level that people could come and live, and all these esoteric luminaries, people like Joseph Campbell, who had written The Power mm -hmm. of Myth and so on, all came there. Manly Hall uh, frequented this place, and of course we talk a lot about Manly P. Hall who was very active during this era and was publishing a lot of the books that are quoted by uh, researchers well, I wanted, was writing them. I wanted to bring this up but because uh, I wanted to ask you about our, our good friend Manly P. Hall. It would, wouldn't be a show without Manly Hall coming up. Right. Um, but but just to on, on regarding Rorick, if, if I understand it, even modern-day uh, people have mentioned about the impact Rorick had on them, like Mikhail Gorbachev. Look oh, to sure. Rorick as a mentor to him. Really? And an wow. example was was given uh, some kind of award, and he commemorated Rorik for being a, a tremendous Russian citizen. And 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 we know Gorbachev is clearly a globalist. He doesn't mince words about that. He's very clear. And he saw that Rorik was really a prototype for his work in promoting globalism. Correct? Absolutely. In fact, he called uh, Gorbachev called Rorik a what was it a. Uh, a national Russian icon or something mm -hmm. like that, words right. to that effect, right. uh, that he really represented uh, Russia and the Soviet Union. And uh, and there's, I believe there is a Rorik Museum there in, in Russia. And if you go, I mean, as, as uh, recent as 2005, 2006, there are articles online uh, that talk about Rorik and his wife and so on and about how their writings, because they wrote all kinds of books. I mean, his mm -hmm. wife wrote 15 or 20 books 
their writings and their teachings and so on are gaining a resurgency throughout Russia. Mm. And, I'm not shocked. Know, yeah. And so that's a it's a Russian them. it's a Russian nationalist nationalistic mysticism then. Sure, because when you, between that and Blavatsky, who right. is also a Russian, they have quite a tradition. And these are people, for those who don't know, Rorik was influencing the United Nations. He was influencing the League of Nations before that. Uh, and his, his influence in this whole, uh, in fact, Blavatsky's whole theosophic movement, the idea of the brotherhood of man, uh, which they were very big into, and the idea of world peace. Uh, this is what Rorik is really known for. That's why they gave him the Peace Prize. He developed this. That's why they had the Rorik Peace Pact at the White House, and he developed the Peace Banner. You know, this circle with three dots in it, and this somehow other <laughs> symbolized peace. Uh, but people took it all very, very seriously mm -hmm. if you study that era. Uh, and they really believed he was this marvelous luminary figure, so much so that when the master building was built and they laid the cornerstone for it, all of these international figures from around the world, you know, dignitaries from foreign governments and so on, all came to New York uh, to sit in attendance and watch the laying of this cornerstone. He was a world teacher, in other words. Absolutely. Observed. Absolutely. Now, now, Manley Hall, uh, as we, we we mentioned him before. Oh, uh, can, can I say this real quick? Yeah. Just real quick. The reason Rorick's important, because I don't think I've said it yet, is because it is believed Rorick was the one who influenced the placement of the Great Seal on the dollar bill, that it was his influence mm. that caused the Great Seal to be put on the dollar bill. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just want to say that real quick so the audience knows. Sure, sure. That's that's a good point to make. On Manley Hall... Uh, we've we've talked about him on prior shows because you, you've also profiled him profiled him very well in your prior documentaries. Who who's written about the secret destiny of America? And he's made it very blatant that there was a hidden occult purpose behind our country. At least certain people wanted to push forward, and he was bold enough to actually write about it and expose it in support of it. Uh, but what 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 uh, we find is that FDR uh, was a major supporter of his occult pagan work and actually had his work uh, microfished during World War II, correct, to, to preserve it for future generations. In other words, he venerated the importance of this ancient pagan wisdom all the way at the president's office. Right. Acor according to Dr. Obadiah Harris, who is the current president of Hall Society, when I interviewed him, uh, he, he had told me, that they told me over the phone when I spoke to him before the interview and then affirmed it again on camera, which we show you in the film, uh, that uh, FDR, after Pearl, the Pearl Harbor bombing, because the Philosophical Research Society, which has Hall's library in it with all of his ancient books and so on, um, that's in California. It's in Los Angeles. And so when Pearl Harbor was bombed, there was, I guess, some concern that the Japanese might try to make their way to the West Coast and whatnot. And so uh, FDR sent emissaries to Los Angeles, to the library, the Philosophic Library, to microfish all that material because, as Dr. Harris says, he wanted to preserve it as a national treasure. Now, wow. what's very interesting is Hall had been financed by some wealthy baroness there in California, when he was a young man, 
who said, I'll take care of you financially. I just want you to go and gather all of these manuscripts and teachings and writings and so on and assemble them for the greater good of humanity, I guess. Mm-hmm. So his library is mm. made up of materials that he collected when he's going around the world. And he would go meet with these tribesmen. He would go meet with, you know, different uh, cultural groups and, and so on and, and mystical uh, uh, shaman and whoever and go and obtain books and writings from ancient libraries wherever he could. And so through searching all these you know, ancient arcana and teachings and whatnot, he developed his conclusions about America and that America had this secret destiny that had been known by secret societies for hundreds of years. And that's what his book on the secret destiny of America and then, uh, you know, America's assignment with destiny and all this other kind of stuff that he was writing about. That's what he's writing about. And FDR, apparently, and Henry Wallace both uh, accepted his ideas because they're both talking about America as this land of destiny, saying, as FDR does, that America has a rendezvous with destiny. They even erect this figure there in Washington, D.C., in a tympanum on the National Archives building that houses the Declaration of Independence and so on. And they have a figure seated on a throne with six stars above his head, and the figure is called Destiny. And that was erected during FDR's administration. Um, so Weird. Only, yeah. <laughs> well, let me, let me give you just a few examples for our listeners uh, to bring it back to the current day. Uh, when I was... Uh, uh, at the the UN and World Council of Churches sponsored meeting on religion and spirituality, I spoke at this last summer. Uh, there were a number of speakers there who were mystics, much like Nicholas Rorick. Some of them were into the UFO cults, where they believed our space brothers were coming back that created us and they're communicating. <laughs> Several of these people showed evidence where they met with high-level figures in our government. These people were fascinated with what they had to share with them. Now, these are the kind of people who out in front of the cameras say that they're devout Christians and they love God and say all the right words for us. But behind closed doors, it's almost like what would have been done, let's say, 100 years ago when they would have seances and they would bring in these famous seance people, you know, the back door of the White House or whatever. But these figures are actually doing it now. One of the uh, people showed the influence that Lawrence Rockefeller had in uh, showing that we did have communication with extraterrestrials that had something to teach us that had an impact on the Clintons. Uh, we also know that, uh, uh, let's see, I guess Hillary Clinton used a channeler to channel Eleanor Roosevelt when she was in office. And the Reagans actually used astrologers to make decisions on when he would make key decisions. And all this came out in in the regular media. Uh, there are other guys like our recent uh, FBI director whose name just escapes me, but uh, uh, he's, a, he's a real popular and conservative figures. He's an uh, uh, employee of Booz Allen. You see him on regular t- TV. Uh, he was another name that came up with some of these mystics and gurus that he would have them over at their house for dinner parties to find out what these ascended masters were telling them about what was going to happen in the future. 
Mm. So, so this association behind closed doors has continued on from times in the past up to now. And I think the message I take it, I'd like your comment, uh, Brother Chris, is that um, we need to be a little careful in thinking that we think we really know some of these politicians. And it seems to be a fact of life that although we would like to think that God sees our country as the main force of Christianity in the world and, and we're the first one on his mind when, when he thinks of the church. But in fact, there are forces in our leadership and our government that have nothing to do with what we think of traditional Christianity, at least behind closed doors. And this obviously influences the decisions that they make. Do you have any comments on that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's part of what we try to, to point out. We do it carefully. Uh, we're not looking to make accusations, but, you know, when you've got President George W. Bush uh, sits on camera with uh, Charlie Gibson, and everybody's touting this man as a born-again Christian, supposedly, and he tells Charlie Gibson he believes there are many paths to God, many routes, I think, is the words that he used, and that Islam and Christianity are two different routes to getting to God and so on. Uh, and then he's, you know, he's, he's pictured uh, with his dad at the Bohemian Grove there in Northern California mm-hmm. where these guys dance around a 40-foot owl and perform occult ceremonies. And he admits then that he's also a member of the Skull and Bones Society, this occult group. Uh, that's you know meeting behind closed doors and again more pagan occult rituals and he doesn't denounce any of this he doesn't say well that was my old life and you know I can't take part in that anymore because I I believe in Jesus Christ now uh, he you know you, you you got a problem if you're looking at this guy as a Christian and millions of Christians across the country embrace him as such I've seen some Christians just get so emotionally carried away yeah, uh, ridiculous. because they thought he was a Christian. Um, and here he is uh, having a, a, you know, a double life, really. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, the real issue is, again, we're, we're not sitting and judging morality. We're not saying, oh, he looked at some gal or whatever, or he, had, he drank wine and got drunk. That has nothing to do with it. We're saved by God's grace through faith. But the question is, what is the faith of a man who believes there's many routes to God and believes he can take part in pagan and occult ceremonies? What is his faith? Well, the other question is, if they are actively pursuing wisdom from these other channels, how can we presume that it doesn't have an influence on the decisions that they make that affect all of us? Oh, of course. Obviously, there's, there's physical impacts just in the here and now, but even in the spiritual realms. Uh, there are impacts, and and we know that we we all are individually accountable before God, but there also is a is a collective impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, we read in the Scripture about the princes of of different countries like Persia and Greece and other things, and and, and there, there's you know the, the term zeitgeist is thrown out a lot today, but a sort of general sense of the times. And I think when there's a certain air of 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 paganism or idolatry or rebellion against God that overtakes a society. There's a collective punishment that comes on people, even when you when you have a you know a few righteous people sprinkled amongst them. Yeah. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I, I'm always reminded of that scripture where God says that He has reserved unto Himself a certain number uh, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Satan. Uh, that that's the issue. I mean, that's what this comes down to. Is is somebody really faithful to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, or are they bowing the knee to Baal behind closed doors 
and then coming out as a deceiver, as a wolf in sheep's clothing, and telling the flock of God, oh, hey, I'm a Christian, you should support me, uh, and deceiving our brothers and sisters out there. That's the issue. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a responsibility as Christians to earnestly contend against such individuals and to hold them accountable. Well, uh, let me just say again that when I saw Riddles and Stone, I felt like you'd done such a good job of exposing that in serving the body by doing that that it had a profound effect on my life yeah. and my worldview. And that's why I recommend everybody get your entire series and uh, get caught up on this. And maybe the first thing to do is get Eye of the Phoenix, but, but get the rest of them in the series and uh, find out what's really going on in our country from a Christian and, and from a believer who understands what the Bible has to say uh, and mm -hmm. shines the light of the truth of, the, of Scripture and the gospel uh, on, the, on the activities of our nation, our historical figures, and our leaders today. Yeah, I really can't think of a better medium to, to look at all this stuff. You know, I was trying to think of that. You're, you've encompassed such an incredible body of work in your, in your documentaries. Um, it's it's kind of stunning when you, st when you step back and look at it. Well, praise the Lord, brother. Praise the Lord. I, I appreciate that. That means a lot. Well, you've thrown such a wide dragnet of people that are involved. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just hoping. Dr. That's a lot of fish in that net. I'm just hoping Doctor Future and Tom Bionic are not somehow attached, somehow remotely to some of these uh, CD figures, because the, the net is just an incredible network of mm -hmm. uh, of people that are part of this. Um, to, to to let me get back from behind the pulpit here for a minute, uh, back to our discussion here. Can you elaborate just very briefly on uh, the significance of the strange casket that Nicholas Rorick was always seen shown as having in his possession? Yeah, this is kind of a bizarre thing. You know, I saw that first when we were working on Secret Mysteries Part 1, and that's when I w was given permission to go into Manley Hall's library at uh, PRS in Los Angeles. And we were allowed to film in the inside of the library and do an interview with the president there and then one of our speakers, Buff Perry. And when uh, when I first got there, or not long after I got there, both uh, Dr. Harris, the president, and Buff Perry were talking about this little statuette of a bald-headed guy with a goatee wearing a long Asian-looking robe and mm -hmm. holding this little casket in his hands. And if you've watched Secret Mysteries Part 1 and Secret Mysteries Part 2, you've seen this little figurine. Well, now in Part 3, Eye of the Phoenix, we explain it to you in fullness because that little figurine is Nicholas Rorick. And he's holding this little casket in his hands, and he's staring down at it. And this was something that Henry Wallace, who became Vice President of the United States of America, could have been sitting in the White House as the Commander-in-Chief. He wrote about this. And when he, in one of his letters to Rorick, he says, I'm thinking of you uh, standing there holding this casket, this precious, sacred casket. And I have thought of the admonition, await the stone. Okay? And these are the kinds of things that he's writing about in his letters to Rorick. So what is the deal with this casket? And if you study Rorick, you see this, imagery there is a painting of him holding this casket there's a, a figurine of him i found a rorick library like halfway around the world and they had this white statue in their library of uh, like a porcelain statue with again rorick holding this casket and staring down at it hmm. and in the casket uh, according to buff perry who's like the lead researcher on all this was supposedly a stone 
that had been delivered to Nicholas and his Nicholas Rorick and his wife Helena in 1923 under mysterious circumstances while they were in Paris, and they believed that this was some kind of a magical stone that had very uh, you know esoteric and symbolic significance and so on, and so much so that the presence of this in their lives really transformed everything that they were doing. And so all of Rorick's paintings in a whole variety of ways end up symbolizing uh, this stone and the casket and, and so on. And, and there are, we show a number of these paintings in the film. Uh, but his wife you know, wrote extensively about it. You have uh, Henry Wallace writing about this stone and so on and commenting on it and seeing it as the sacred object. Uh, it's very, very disturbing, and we reveal through the course of the documentary, uh, because Manley Hall, who was associated with these guys, they were meeting apparently in the uh, the master building there. There was an there's an upper level called the penthouse, and up in that penthouse, Rorick had kind of this chapel or this meditation room, as they they call it by mm-hmm. different names, and he met up there with what they called, and this, these are their words, not mine, their esoteric elite, the people who were really high up and who they believe were really enlightened people would go up there with Rorick and have meetings and discussions and meditations and whatever. And there's in no uncertain way, Rorick and his wife were deeply, deeply involved in the occult, as we reveal in the film. These guys were so deep into it they were channeling spirits. They were supposedly, through occultation, having objects materialize from the spirit world and come into their reality. This wow. is what they recorded. They recorded this in their own diaries, okay, that this kind of thing was happening. Now, as Christians, you know, reading our Bibles, we know that Satan and his demons can do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we're told in the Bible that you know Satan has certain powers uh, that he can you know like in the Book of Job he sends a wind that knocks down a house he afflicts Job with boils in the New Testament he takes Jesus up to a high place and in a moment in time it says he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glories of them Satan has real power uh, the Bible doesn't tell us Satan's power is fake uh, in the Old Testament Moses when he stands before Pharaoh, he takes his staff and he throws it down right by the power of God. It becomes a serpent. Well, then the two magicians of Pharaoh come and they throw their staffs down and they become serpents. Right. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that their serpents were fake. Okay, so these mm-hmm. magicians had real power. Now, God's power is greater, of course, and that's why uh, Moses' staff, his serpent, devoured theirs, uh, demonstrating that God is the most high God. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Satan still has real powers. We're back here on the Future Quake show with the good Dr. Future. And the slightly less than good, but mostly good. But still under grace, Tom Bionic. Yeah, under Tom Bionic. Grace. And we've been listening to... Lots. <laughs> Sorry. We may need physical protection here as well as spiritual in a minute. Oh, I'm seeing the laser eyes. Uh, we are, are back uh, after our second segment with Chris Pinto when things just keep getting more strange ever mm-hmm. segment. Uh, we got to learn a little bit more about Nicholas Rorick and 
and you mentioned his influence over uh, yeah. modern society from he was, Gorbachev down is pretty scary. Yeah, it's weird. Nobody talks about him. His teachings are gaining uh, gaining ground again in Russia, and uh, you know, of course, he was responsible for the placement of all the seals on the dollar bill. But uh, that's another mm-hmm. another kettle of fish. Ladies and gentlemen, keep an eye out for what you hear about him. Uh, one thing I forgot to ask Brother Chris was he died in 1947, I believe, mm-hmm. which was the year that Aleister Crowley died. That the Roswell event occurred, a whole bunch of other Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Whoa. Sort of a big year. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of uh, another big event, let's have Merv come in to tell our listeners uh-huh, how they can contact uh-huh, us in Future funny. Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. We're, uh, we're way over. Let's get wrap out of up. here. Okay. Like he said, we're getting out of here, but until tomorrow, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Sayonara. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Future Quake Show with Dr. Future. And Tom Bionic. And this Wednesday, uh, we're having our third segment here yeah. with Chris Pinto, the mm-hmm. writing director of Eye of the Phoenix. A uh, new documentary out talking about the planned destiny of America and its evidence on the dollar bill. Yeah. He says, boy, it's getting weirder by the minute. And uh, we don't have much time to talk today, so we're going to go Let's straight get to right into it. our segment of the interview. And then we'll be right back with a, just a brief moment to discuss it here on Future Quake. When we read about these things... Uh, you know, we can't help but take notice and go, you know, okay, there's no question. These guys were deeply involved with occult powers. And Helen Aurorik, his wife, claimed that she was channeling the same spirit named Master Mariah who had been communicating with uh, Madame Blavatsky and inspired her theosophical writings. Well, this spirit had told Blavatsky that Lucifer is the true God, okay? And it's not the God of the Bible at all. Whoa. Oh. All right, and this is in, in no uncertain way. We show one of the, the quotes that Blavatsky uses in her book. She uses the phrase, demoness deus inversus, uh, which means the devil is God inverted. And she's teaching this ancient Gnostic belief that goes back to the, uh, the Garden of Eden, and says that, you know, God, who created mankind, and make it clear, he's the creator. He created Adam and Eve. Uh, and then he forbade mankind to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, they say, he was an evil God. He was really a mm-hmm. devil. That's what they say. But then the angel of light, the serpent, Lucifer, came along and bade them partake of knowledge, and that that was supposedly not the fall of man, but their redemption. And this is what they believe. This is what Blavatsky believed. 
This is what Obadiah Harris at Manley Hall Society told me when I interviewed him, that it's the very reverse of what we as Christians believe. Okay. Let, 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 let me ask Go you ahead. something about uh, going back to Rorick again, uh, just drinking this all in and thinking about it. Uh, supposedly he receives this mysterious casket with an object in it in 1923. In right. your research, could you see a big change in the level of his influence and his prominence after that approximate period of time? Well, from 19, yeah. I mean, actually, yes, because it's from 1923 up until 1935, from what I understand. Because mm. there was, uh, Rorick had eventually, he has a falling out with Henry Wallace and with Lewis Horwich, his financial benefactor. They, they disown him eventually. And that was in 1935. And that's a story we talk about it in the film. But prior to that, you know, he was working for the secret. He was working for the Department of Agriculture. They financed Rorick. The American government, our government, financed this guy to go abroad on behalf Holy of the cow. United States. So, uh, so yeah, from 1923 to 35, what is that? Seven, ten, twelve years. Uh, he's twelve, thirteen years, however long. He is. Uh, he is. Yeah, he's. That's his rise to international stardom. That's his rise to, you know, being this very exotic. I mean, the the master building was erected mm -hmm. in 1929. Well, well, the reason why I ask that is that um, I have to be careful. I'll say this: when, when certain people who are mystical, or at least known to be mystical, have certain objects that are venerated objects, relics, uh, things start to happen. And and I think part of the reason is a little psychological in that they start to believe in themselves when they feel like they have access to mm. something that's tangible. And uh, I was I was talking to Tom Bionic off air beforehand, and, and I have a hard time understanding because I, I tend not to uh, imbue physical objects with any kind of power in and of themselves. Power has to come from, from, a, from an entity, a personality. But right. what they seem to do, for lack of a better term, is, is focus faith. Uh, people have faith in whatever entity they're worshiping, and for whatever reason, it's some quirk of the human personality that it, it tends to sharpen and focus their faith in some people. And that's not something I recommend anyone do, because I believe Christians have done that with certain relics and icons they've had, and, which I consider idolatry. But uh, there, there is some kind of effect, whether it's psychological or something beyond that in the spiritual realm. But it's interesting to see how these kind of things have an influence on people. And I know the skeptics listening to us may say, oh, these guys were just, uh, you know, con artists and fakes, and they pulled one over on some pretty high-level people. It happens many times, and these guys really were up to nothing. And those kind of things can happen. But the, the net result is, is that um, the impact they have on decision-makers that affect all of us is real nonetheless. Now, I, I tend to think that there's enough things like what you've described and you describe in your documentaries that cannot be explained by any other way, that there has to be some other kind of supernatural force at play. Mm -hmm. But there may be a mixture of some kind of showmanship plus the other that, that, that maybe Wallace discovered later after his career was ruined. But the net effect, regardless, is that these figures take actions based upon it, and it certainly supports the dark forces, does it not, regardless of what the original motivation is? Oh, I think so. And, I mean, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I think Rorick was being... I think he was, you know, I think of a passage in the book of Revelation when it talks about the Antichrist and it says uh, the dragon gave power unto the beast, you know. 
uh, uh, Satan promises power to those who will worship him, uh, those who will bow down to him. He says, uh, I think he makes the same offer. Uh, we have we have much reason to believe he makes the same offer that he made to Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, you know, uh, but then you've got the play Faust, you know, the whole deal with the devil. Uh, Pastor Joe Schimmel in his 10-hour rock video shows one example after another of musicians who openly admit that they've made pacts with the devil for fame and fortune. So uh, I, I, I think I, I think Rorick, because of his influence, because it, it, you almost can't explain it. It's uncanny mm-hmm. right. yeah. how influential he was. And when you, when the more you look into it, the more it's like this just does not make any sense. Dignitaries from around the world, you know, you've got uh, if you go to, uh, I mean, and the, the sources. I was very careful to try and uh, quote very conservative sources. I mean, the guys who wrote uh, Tournament of Shadows. One of them is a New York Times editor. Uh, we hmm. quote American AmericanHeritage.com, which is like this very conservative. Uh, history of America, and they talk about the influence that Rorick had in the White House and how the State Department was very disturbed by it because Rorick was this mystical figure. And they openly admit that Henry Wallace was deeply involved in the occult. Uh, He was known for that in FDR's administration, and FDR defended him in spite of it. And uh, they had warned FDR not to make him the vice president uh, because of his occult activities and things like that. But uh, FDR, you know, he said, no, I, I, I think he's a philosopher and he's going to teach people things and so on. And so he brought uh, Wallace on board as the VP. Well, what I find is leaders in our countries will make moral decisions unless you can give them any other excuse not to. Uh, if, for all those fails, they, they might attempt to be moral. But if you give any kind of s- the slightest reason for them to look the other way, they will. And just another case in point is Jack Parsons. Yeah. Jack Parsons was known by our government to be one of the top occultists in our own country and here in the 1940s. Did, did business with him. Uh, who, you know, called himself the Antichrist. But the fact that he knew a whole lot about making rockets and might be of usefulness in the Cold War, means that we still used him, even with that full knowledge that he was doing some pretty awful things. So I would say there's a precedent that has been long established of our government looking at one. Yeah, he was the founder of JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and I knew a lot of people who worked out of JPL when I I lived in California. Hmm. uh, And and the odd thing is, I I think most of those people have no idea, because they're very... Very conservative, like you know, they're 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 rocket fuel people. They're <laughs> rocket yeah. scientists, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they have no idea that the that the founder of this uh, company was this guy deeply involved in you know occultism and Satanism, and him working with L. Ron Hubbard, who was also mm-hmm. a Satanist. Um, yeah, yeah, conducting the Babylon working out in the desert, trying to uh, bring forth the great whore Babylon to be the consort to the Antichrist. You know, right. ju- just normal scientist stuff. Yeah. Hey, uh, in, oh, in, in, li- in line with our discussion in this matter, and I, I don't mean to make too much about it, but it does tie in very interestingly to uh, another topic about, and I'm not sure I pronounce this right, a legend of the, the Lapis Exilis or something similar to that. Right, Lapis Exilis. Or that too. Um, right. <laughs> but 
and, and I want to caveat for our listeners here; so they don't misunderstand. This is not something that that I don't think you're saying you you know for sure is real or not or whatever. But the key is the occultists believe that this is real. Uh, we do know that that evil demonic forces are there. We've already established that. But but they go so far as to have a connection back to their hero Lucifer through this, and this ties back into physical icons that have made their dissemination throughout the world and been venerated. At least this is a story that a number of them buy. Could you explain that what that is and why this motivates them so much to embrace these icons? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is a really you know when when we talked earlier about. Uh, Rorick having this casket, and inside the casket is this stone. Uh, we interviewed probably the lead researcher on this whole thing, Buff Perry, and he has been tracking down this artifact for years. In fact, he was supported by uh, a, a prominent member of the Philosophic Research Society for years to go and track down this artifact that is called La Exilis, or that they call La Exilis. And the name comes, it's a, it's a variation, of the name uh, for the Grail Stone from Wolfram von Eschenbach's legend, Parsifal. Mm. Just so people know, during this era, this is the whole pre-World War II era, in Nazi Germany, uh, Wagner had written his opera, Parsifal, that was based on Wolfram von Eschenbach's tale. And Hitler was heavily motivated and inspired by Wagner, and Parsifal in particular. And there are people who believe, like if you read the book The Spear of Destiny, Trevor Ravenscroft asserts that Hitler's whole life was a grail quest, you know, this quest for the Holy Grail. But what we're not usually told is, okay, what is the origin of the Holy Grail, according to ancient legends? And what's very interesting is the stone that Rurik had uh, was, he called it Lapis Exilis. Now, that's the name that Eschenbach gives to the Grail Stone. All right, so the Grail is at least two things, according to Eschenbach. It's the cup of Christ, and it's the stone that fell from heaven. It's kind of confusing a little bit, because we tend to think of the Holy Grail as this cup, uh, and that's it. But in Eschenbach's tale, he says the stone, well, he's talking about the Knights Templar, and he says the Templars live with a stone. And he says, if you do not know what it is called, I will tell you, it is called Lapis Exilis. Now, now, let me clarify here, too, and I don't want to muddy the waters, but there are additional important figures in that story, too. There is also the Holy Lance, or the spear, known as the Spear of Destiny, as well, Correct. Uh, I believe that's yes. I it is an that. additional artifact or relic icon hmm. that has its own history related to world rule and domination. That's a discussion for another show. Right. But Parsifal is a very, very important thing for people to understand on what has motivated world leaders from the time it was written. Uh, it, leaders who have any kind of interest in the occult look to that as something that has its own innate destiny to it and what the purpose of mankind is, correct? Right. Right, I mean, and the thing is, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, the, uh, the the analogy that I give for people, and you brought it up several times, Doc, is, uh, you know, somebody would look at this and go, I don't believe all that, and, and we don't believe it either. But they do believe it. You know, they believe this stuff. They believe, as Hitler did, 
you know, you know about the legends of ancient Atlantis and the, the idea of the Aryan, because the Aryan whole Aryan Superman deal is the Aryans, according to Madame Blavatsky of the Theosophical Society, there's another tie-in with Hitler in this whole environment now, um, because Hitler believed in Blavatsky's writings. And she's writing about ancient Atlantis and the master race of Atlantis were the Aryans. Okay? So this is where Hitler got his whole concept. And, you know, we hear about these things, this, you know, ancient artifacts, the Grail Stone. To us, it doesn't make a lot of sense and we don't put a lot of value on it. But they do put a lot of value. The analogy I give is, you know, if you're sitting in a pizza parlor and some guy comes in and he's a Muslim, and he's got a six-pack of dynamite strapped on, and he says, you know, I believe that if I blow myself up and kill you, I'm going to go straight to heaven and get 70 brown-eyed virgins. And then you say, well, I don't believe that. And then he says, well, I do, and then bam, he blows himself up. <laughs> you know, the fact that we don't believe it mm-hmm. doesn't diminish its ability to impact our lives. And when we're talking about world leaders, presidents and vice presidents and secretaries and so on, guys who, uh, I mean, especially through the FDR era, these were guys who were, were a part of things that shook the whole world. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. I think, you know, what they believed and what was motivating them, I think, is very important. Well, let's clarify further, too, that being Christians, we do believe in the supernatural world, including the world of darkness, and what they refer to, there are elements of truth, supernatural, and I'm sure they're receiving supernatural assistance in what they do when it furthers the aims and the goals of the powers of darkness. It's just that they, they tend to take stories and put them on their ear. They'll make the bad guys the good guys and vice versa. They'll mm-hmm. look at Lucifer as the light bearer uh, who, who, who was trying to lead them to the tree of knowledge and, and Jehovah is the one to keep us away from it. They embellish. They add other additional stories and things. So they, they, they take elements of truth and just like Satan does, he will mix truth and even some scripture and turn it into a lie. And that's what these stories are evidence of. They're, they have elements of spiritual truth that, that have been distorted for somebody else's aims, correct? Absolutely. And it, it's, it really seems like, especially when you get into the Grail legends, and you find out the origin of the Grail Stone, uh, it really seems like certain occult powers wanted to find a way. Manley Hall says something, and, and, and I use this quote a bit, uh, but he says, he talks about how the pagan intellectuals reclothed their original ideas in a garment of Christian phraseology. And that's really what, yeah, that's what you get with your grail legends. They've taken the, you know, these pagan occult concepts and they've attached the whole idea of the cup of Christ and so on on the outside uh, so that uh, Christians in general can sort of receive it and, you know, they might not believe it's biblical or whatever, but they don't necessarily mind it either. So in other words, if they had just come up with these things today, they would be invited on Oprah, for example, and would be big stars on the Oprah Book Club. Yeah. Right. I mean, isn't that, in fact, what happens yeah. today is that same technique? You sprinkle in a few little Christian words and terms and, and, and some nondescript kind of things, and, and uh, people won't know what they're swallowing. Exactly. And that's, I believe that's exactly what they intend. They don't want people to know what they're swallowing until it's too late. Uh, and, and then we reveal what the 
the origin of this stone was, or at least what they believed about it. Mm-hmm. Because both Manley Hall, okay, Manley Hall and Nicholas Rorick wrote about this stone, and they called it Lapis Exilis. They used that term. And they were using, actually in von Eschenbach's tale, we explain it, uh, he spells it. The word Lapis simply means the stone. Well, for some reason, Eschenbach wrote Lapsit Exilis. Okay? That's what he wrote. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Rorick, in his diary, describes it as Lapis Exilis. And Manley Hall, in his book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, he describes it the exact same way, Lapis Exilis, which tells us, or it implies, that both Hall and Rorick had the same view of this artifact. And the same source of original information. Exactly. Hmm. Now, now, can you tell us what that is? I mean, this is going to shock a lot of people. What is it? Where do they believe that stone first came from and what happened to it? According to Manley Hall, and we quote him directly, we just show you the quote, that stone that fell from heaven fell was the gemstone, a gemstone, that fell from the crown of Lucifer himself. Okay? During the war in the heavens, when the archangel Michael fought against Lucifer, uh, Michael struck Lucifer with his sword, and the flashing Lapis Exilis, the gemstone of Lucifer, falls from his crown uh, and falls to earth eventually. And then is fashioned into, from that stone, is fashioned uh, the cup of Christ. And that is the Holy Grail. That's the origin of the Holy Grail, according to these ancient legends. Okay, But that, that's not the only piece of that stone. Another stone went some other places, correct? According so, to them? According to them. And now this is where you can find dozens of occult authors and writers who write about this. We quote Tracy Twyman, who writes about it. You've got even, um, oh, the guy who wrote, uh, Ignatius Donnelly, who wrote about Atlantis in the 19th century. Uh, you, you've got legends that go all over the place that associate this stone all the way back to ancient Atlantis. Uh, it was they, they associate it with the emerald tablet of Hermes. They associate it with the stone in uh, in the Kaaba, the black stone of the Kaaba. But they in Mecca. In in Mecca, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a very real stone. You can go there today. They associate it with the stone of destiny, which was uh, had by the Scots, and they crowned their Scottish kings upon it. And it was captured by the English, and all the monarchs of England had been uh, crowned upon that stone. Now, now that legend also goes back to that stone just so happened to be at Bethel, correct? According to them, yeah. where where Jacob Jesus laid his head and saw the yeah. saw the ladder to heaven. Exactly. And see, and that's what tells me why they venerate this is that what how an occultist would review that story in the Bible is that a portal has been opened up into the heavens. And that's what they want. They want access into the other dimension. And when they read that story, they think someone has found some kind of device, just like a crystal ball, to open up a portal into the heavens. So obviously they want to keep onto that device because they think they can manipulate it like a, like a crystal ball to open up the portal to the other side whenever they want. At least that's my speculation. What do you think well, about that? Well, that's why, I mean, in, you know, in, you know, Jacob lays his head on the stone and then he has a dream and he sees the ladder going up to heaven. And angels ascending and descending. Well, the Masons and the secret societies use the ladder, which they will talk about as Jacob's ladder, as a symbol, okay, for for ascending, I guess, into godhood or whatever. 
But what's interesting is that Albert Pike, in Morals and Dogma, writes about Jacob's Ladder, and in it he implies <coughs> that Jacob's Ladder, what Jacob may have really seen, was a pyramid, was like a step mm-hmm. pyramid instead of a ladder. Hmm. That's what. Now, again, that's according to Pike. I don't believe any of that stuff. Right. I think that's all the occult mumbo-jumbo. But still, the uh, meaning of it, either way, it, pyramids were built all over the world, in Mesoamerica, Central America, and they were ways to ascend to the gods, to get exactly. to the top of it and have direct contact with the gods. And that's what, what their desire is, because the hermetic uh, uh, doctrine is as above, so below. And they ultimately they, they emulate what they think goes on in the heavens, so ultimately they could open up that hole again. And the, the last time they did it with World Flourish was in the Tower of Babel, where, where, as I understand it, if you believe Josephus and others, they desired to actually go up and make war against God. They wanted to open the heavens to go up there and do that. And since they've been dispersed, and that, that whole mystery teaching that they had access to has been dispersed around the world, they still have that desire to open that portal up and uh, start the battle all over again, I believe. Well, that's what we're told in the book of Revelation is going to happen, that the kings of the earth are going to gather with Antichrist and make war against the Lamb of God. And the abyss, uh, is, the abyss is going to open. Those portals are going to open, uh, both with heavenly beings coming out and also with infernal beings coming out. You've got the abyss opening, and, and, and you've always noticed how you have these clouds always show up whenever these portals open. Uh, whenever God appears in any, any strong manner to people, there's always a cloud or mist that opens. You, you see the Lord come in the clouds. And when they open the abyss, you, you, you see a dark clouds of like a furnace opening up. So I think we're really seeing a picture where we're actually seeing these portals open from these, these heavenly spheres or dimensions or whatever you call them. And it really is sort of the, the battle royal. Of all beings on earth and in heavens, all meeting at one time for, to, to settle everything, all the marbles, so to speak. We're back here at the Future Quake Show with Dr. Future. And Tom Bionic. And uh, we had lots of yeah. far-out stuff to talk about. Basically, Brother Chris was talking about, here's what the occult people believe, the ultimate mm-hmm. significance. He's not saying he buys all of it. No, he's Nor a- us, but it's important to know that they do. Yes. Uh, I found it interesting, you know, just before we hit the play button, that... Uh, uh, that guy that uh, Nicholas Rourke's wife was channeling, that teacher, mm-hmm. what was his name? Master Mariah, I believe. Yeah, sure sounds a whole lot like uh, the angel Maronai. Right. Who brought the uh, the scrolls. Could have been uh, that John uh, Smith just misheard him. Joseph yeah. Smith. Yeah, well, he he was looking into his hat, I think, when that whole thing Is that happened. when it happened? Yeah, yeah. No. I can't remember the exact details. Must no. pull a rabbit out of my hat. Oh, yeah. well, wait, it's an angel. Don't know my own strength. <laughs> um, well, we uh, need to bring Merv in. Okay. So, Merv, would you come in, uh, Master Merv, and uh, tell our listeners how they can contact us here at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. Like an angel of the Lord. That's right. Yeah, let's get out of here. Well, we got to go. I uh, hope you really enjoy our segment tomorrow. We're going to wrap up our discussion with Chris Pinto. But until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Ciao, baby. Join us next time 
as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Welcome to the Thursday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. I'm not afraid to kick the lapis exilis out the front door. Bionic. You know, people have no idea what you're talking about with that, unless they listened yesterday. Yes, true. The lapis exilis is a, uh, is a rock that the occultists believe uh, fell from heaven. and uh, That Michael knocked it out of the crown of Satan. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there's varying stories on that, to be complete. But that's the most interesting yeah. one. Sure. That's an interesting one. And, and it's not surprising because they see him as bejeweled and a shining one. Mm-hmm. The word nakash for serpent in Hebrew means shining one. Sounds so like maybe it was his jewel, yes. Yeah. So the yeah. jewel is what was shining. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of like a, a loss of Camelot for them when he fell that they're trying to restore. I always, you know, I'll be honest, watching all this stuff, I kind of, you know, that big foundation stone of the master building they talked about mm-hmm. in the documentary. I just want to get in there with a big stencil and some orange paint and write, Jesus is Lord, right on the, the top of it. Okay. I was just thinking about, like, knocking into it with a car and finding out what's in there. Or that, too. Only legally and lawfully, of course, FCC. Yes. But, uh, you know, if somebody had an accident there accidentally and yeah. their car hit it, be curious to be there and see what was in there. Yeah. Be. Well, wow. before we get in more trouble, we need to go bring in Brother Chris. So, All right. Uh, we've got Brother Chris Pinto coming in, uh, director of Eye of the Phoenix, talking about the planned destiny of America and its evidence on the dollar bill. So, no further ado, here's Brother Chris on Future Quake. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really uncanny. You know, the more I study Bible prophecy... And the more I study world history and, and what's been happening, you know, through the 20th century and now into the 21st, it really is uncanny how it all fits together with God's great plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just don't see how anybody could look at all of this evidence, you know, especially when you're studying prophecy and believe that all of this is just a big coincidence, you know, and that, that all of these elements yeah. are just accidentally falling together. Uh, I, I don't see how anybody could deny that the word of God is true and that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Amen. Um, you know, I found, so, this, I found this tool as a quick aside here. I found this, all of this stuff really to be an interesting sort of witness to people who aren't expecting, aren't expecting to get witness to at a party. You start in talking about all this stuff and you tell them that, you know, uh, for instance, Israel was out of the land for 1,900 years, and then all of a sudden they're back, and it was all written several thousand years ago, and all, how all of this stuff has fallen into place. Um, I find a lot of times it really interesting, interestingly draws non-Christians in. And Even if they first see you uh, and scoff at you, they may scoff initially, but when you can speak with authority, as long as you're not pulling yeah. their leg, if you don't, if you don't overreach in your claims, mm-hmm. but if one you can explain wh- uh, why it happened, what its significance yeah. is, uh, people live lives out there without having any kind of knowledge or basis that there mm-hmm. is a plan, that there is something underway and a purpose. And what's even what's even more interesting, that can be a real way, a real tool to to talk to people about uh, and gain their trust. In a, in a real sort of way, because I think everybody's had spiritual events, and we've been sort of trained to uh, push those aside. Now, whether they're, whether it's God truly calling to those people or occult things happening uh, remains to be seen. But, you know, I've, I've never had an encounter with somebody where, 
you know, I've talked with them for a while about stuff like this, and then their guard kind of comes down, and then you ask them if they've ever seen anything weird. And the next thing you know, they start gushing. That seems mm-hmm. to be the case 100% of the time. Mm. Yeah, so. and, and, you know, people people have that desire to open up about it and talk about it. Yeah. Uh, they they really do. And, you know, and, and th- that's the whole reason why. I mean, I, I love hearing what you're talking about, about, you know, uh, bringing these things up. I'm always reminded of Revelation 19.10 that says, uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Mm-hmm. And when I go through the New Testament and I read how the apostles and so on were witnessing, they always tied the gospel to prophecy and made it clear that, uh, you know, even as all the prophets of old had witnessed of the coming of Christ into the world, that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises. Hmm. And, uh, and that even as God has fulfilled the promises concerning the Lord's first coming, uh, to die for our sins and then be raised from the dead, uh, he will also fulfill all those promises concerning his second coming. And mm-hmm. praise the Lord, that's what we're seeing uh, come to pass. That's right, that's right. And people know in their hearts, even that aren't Christians, that something is going on, that we're we're getting to a point of no return, we're, yeah. where things are coming <laughs> to a head in every aspect, economic, genetics, technology, the, the earth uh, reaching its... Yeah. Maximum capability, what it can take, um, the nations of the world. I found out, I found out, and people, you're right, people sense that. I found out today that uh, the most popular concealed carry firearm is completely out. You can't buy a single one of those in the United States. Wow. Because people are no- noticing people and are, feeling people that things are aren't going to so stay the status out that quo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They've decided that it's high time to yeah. carry a concealed firearm. Well, 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 they're they're saying that Obama has inspired the purchase of a lot of fire. Oh, well, that could be too. <laughs> that is it's true. unfortunate, but that's what I mean. That's the stories I've seen. They're saying, you know, gun owners right. they're afraid that Obama is going to crack down on right. our gun control laws, mm-hmm. and so people are rushing out to buy guns and so on. Uh, and I think I think a lot of people are concerned because they see right now the big buzz out there. Is that the the financial collapse that the United States is is you know imminently facing mm-hmm. uh, is not an accident that this is this has been a plan you know that they've engineered this whole thing and they are intentionally destroying our economy yeah. so that they will force America and the world into this global economic system mm-hmm. um, and that's what a lot and of course we talk about that in Eye of the Phoenix as well mm-hmm. and right. talk about the symbols of the pyramid and the American eagle that's believed to have been a cleverly conceived yeah. uh, phoenix bird. What, what, talking about symbols, um, you know, we, we've gone into the last quarter of our show well into to that without talking about the dollar bill. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't want to share too much of it, but you actually share in your documentary, uh, back going back to the seals uh, and their mysterious meaning, uh, you have someone on there who is uh, considered an expert by many other sources who actually sort of talks about the occult significance of, se- of several of these seals, correct? The, the, yeah. The, the seal the United States has put on the dollar bill. Yeah, and I, and I felt it was very important to have that segment because I, I felt like a lot of people, you know what's usually talked about on the dollar bill, everybody goes and they, they talk about all the symbols and everything and what do they mean, et cetera, and so on. And so I felt like we needed to have a segment there where somebody who you know who has or claims to have anyway occult knowledge about these things would talk about it, and so we have a guy who 
claims that he was actually raised in a, a an occult family that was deeply involved in witchcraft, like generational witchcraft and so on. And he explains oh. to us what he says they taught him when he was involved in that whole lifestyle. Um, and it was some of the things that he says are things that many people know, and some of the things that he says are things I've never seen anywhere else. Uh, they're very specific and very detailed. And, of course, we present it all, you know, we make the point we can't really confirm or deny what he's saying or some of his claims, but we put it out there. But before we put it out there, we're very careful about it, we prove that there is very definitely an occult connection with Rorick and Wallace who inspired the placement of these symbols on the dollar bill. And then to a certain extent, FDR as well, that they were all involved in this esoteric and occult symbolism and belief and philosophy and so on. And they were 32nd degree Masons as well. Right. Which, which had, really have interested in occult meanings of symbols. And they admit, you know, the official record from the State Department that documents the account of the putting the seal on the dollar bill openly admits, they, they quote Henry Wallace, and Wallace says that he and FDR were 32nd degree Masons, and they saw the all-seeing eye as the eye of the great architect of the universe, and the Novus Ordo Seclorum was the new order of the ages was to them the new deal, the deal of the ages that uh, FDR was promoting. And they believed, or FDR believed, that the new deal could not come about without, you know, except it was under the eye of the great architect. Hmm. Now, this becomes hmm. very interesting, I think, when we've got the media and a lot of people looking to Barack Obama as the next FDR figure. You know? Right, yeah. right. He's and, giving us New Deal economics. Right. While, while we also have, uh, like the Australian Prime Minister this week, talked about a need for a new world order. We've already had the British and several other world figures say that we need a new world order now. So they go hand in hand. Uh, it, one of the things I'd just like to comment on the dollar situation, regardless of what people accept about that or not, um, there very well could be some occult or dark supernatural force behind that that has an influence on all of us with its presence on there. But one other effect it has is that the, the occult meaning of those symbols also can have a subconscious effect, spiritual or psychological in people. And what better way that they could put their symbol in front of everybody, where everybody looks at it all the time and by, by rote, repeated exposure becomes influenced by it than sticking it on our currency. Hmm. By sticking it by our currency, we, ha we hand hand to hand to hand. You're continuously confronted with that emblem right in front of your face. And, and anybody who does propaganda work, uh, you know, when you study things of Hitler and Goebbels or these other people, know that if you take these symbols and you keep putting it in front of people's minds over and over again, it imprints upon them. And so when they want to later imbue those those symbols with special uh, significance or other meanings, the imprinting has already been done on the public. Mm. And that tells me why it's so important that they chose the currency as a means to put those symbols out there. Yeah, I mean, that that whole concept of hiding things in plain sight is, is such a repeated theme. Uh, in fact, when I was still in California years ago, we interviewed a woman who... Uh, who, whose, whose father was one of the uh, chief guys at NATO, 
okay, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And she, now she herself was deeply involved in occult, occultism and, you know, even had like a witch's broom there near her fireplace. I mean, her place was really creepy. And, uh, uh, but Whoa. she was involved. It, it, it appeared she was, she was involved in Luciferianism. She came out at one point in the interview, even though I didn't even ask her. Mm-hmm. I'm asking her regular questions about other things. And then at one point she just starts talking about Lucifer and then she suddenly gets very upset, and she says, "Well, Lucifer is not Satan, you know." And because and they they argue that you know the Christians turned Lucifer into a bad guy. You know, he was always a mm-hmm. good guy until the Christians came along, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and she volunteered this information, but she told me that when she was a little girl, her father, who was one of the leaders there at NATO, used to come home and play a little game with her called. Uh, hiding things in plain sight, and that this was a little, and that this was where she first began to learn about occult symbolism. Hmm. Okay, and so, and 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 now this is NATO. This is a government organization. Of course, these guys are operating. You know, it's not an accident, as we show in Eye of the Phoenix, that we that our top leadership. I mean, American presidents. Uh, you know top political leaders and business leaders and so on are meeting out there in Northern California at this Bohemian Grove and, you know, now and down there, owl god. Yeah. Uh, now, you're not making this up. This is not no. a legend. People have gotten in there with cameras, TV crews, and have smuggled in there and gotten footage of these mm-hmm. events. Complete with and, mock human sacrifice, guys walking mm-hmm. around. and You can watch it on YouTube. You yeah. can look it up and yeah. actually see the real event that was taken out. You show pictures in your documentaries of world figures, presidents, uh, Nixon, uh, Reagan, uh, I don't know if you mentioned, I think Carter, uh, certainly uh, Clinton has been there, mm-hmm. others. This is their, their regular hangout there. There's, there's no debate about it. I remember watching a documentary where David Gergen, who's been an advisor to Republicans and Democrats in the White House, and he was confronted about being there, and he was all jovial about it. And yeah. then when he was asked to explain what he was doing in these pagan rites, he got very, very mad. And he said it was none of the public's business. Uh, right, none yeah. of their blankety-blank business. Yeah. That the public would know what they do there. Now, he's a figure who you see almost every night on one of the TV news stations mm-hmm. as a trusted advisor. Those are the people who lead our country. And, uh, you know, back to the uh, the the, uh, the symbol of the pyramid with the eye over it, I was shocked not all that long ago when I was up of all places Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I went to go sign in at the visitor center, and I saw the military man who was behind the counter who was, you know, active duty military, had an emblem on his uh, uh, camouflage fatigues that had that same pyramid with the eye over it. Whoa. And I thought that was the strangest thing. And I asked yeah. him about it, and he didn't think it was any kind of big deal. And mm-hmm. I've since been there a second time. I've seen that same emblem uh, over it. So, you know, we get imprinting of these symbols, and they're they're planned to be used in a bigger way in the future. We, we, we've we just only been, been exposed to it so they yeah. can use it for greater purposes. Can, can I ask you one last question again about the content? We're coming down here to the end. But can you very briefly... Mention of all things, you throw in there something about the temple in Jerusalem. This all can lead possibly to an impact to the temple in the future, which we know is a is a key prophetic milestone. Can you say just a brief word about that? Oh, sure. I mean, this is uh, I mean, this is where it all 
it all seems to come together. The symbols on the back of the dollar bill, according to David Oveson in his book, he argues that the uh, uh, that one of the symbols, part of the symbolism for the Great Pyramid, is the idea of a complete temple, the the finished final temple in Jerusalem. And we have a whole segment where we talk about this in the film, and we're interviewing Buff Perry, who's a Jewish researcher. And he has been tracking this artifact for years, and he says that that the Jewish rabbis, okay, and the Freemasons, you have both Jewish rabbis and Freemasons who want this temple rebuilt there in Jerusalem. They want the, uh, uh, you know, and, and the Masons want a rebuilt Solomon's temple, apparently, and the Jews want the Ezekiel temple that's described in the book of Ezekiel and so on. And they have this agreement about this but apparently they're in agreement they both want this stone this artifact to be returned because they see it as kind of a, a completion or capstone symbol and according to what buff says in, in the interview and i'll let you see the film to get all the details on it but they are awaiting the return of this stone to jerusalem and when that stone returns he says they have a uh, they're planning to initiate some kind of a plan to take the temple mount and begin rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem hmm. uh and so it's very very bizarre how all of this stuff when you, know, they, think, you you think about this if if they go back with that old story we talked about about this stone they have being related to the stone that fell down that's that's part of the uh uh Kabah in uh in Islam may be related even to something that's inside the Dome of the Rock. Uh, you might be surprised what kind of support they might get for something to go up there if they really make it more of a pan-religious type connection to it. Right, and that's exactly what Rorick was doing with this stone. And there are different views about this whole idea of the stone, and it gets confusing you know, when, when you begin to look into it. But, but really what Rorick and his wife did is they used it in exactly what you're saying, Doc, this unification symbol that was going to unify all the religions and all the concepts uh, about a Messiah figure and so on. Of course, the idea of the stone and the Messiah, you know, Jesus is referred to as, you know, the, uh, the, the stone rejected by the builders, right, that has become the head mm -hmm. of the corner. And they see the same thing, and they refer to those scriptures, the Masons do, but obviously... You know, they believe in this amalgamated, universal Christ of all religions. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas we understand, no, Jesus is holy. He's separate from all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the true Messiah, and mm -hmm. not to be intermingled with these others. But they have they have way. another they have another shepherd. In other words, absolutely, mm -hmm. they're they're anticipating the manifestation of Antichrist, who will for them complete their one world order. Well, uh, we're, we're down to the last couple of minutes here uh, in our interview, and I want to ask you uh, how our listeners can uh, get a hold of your new documentary as well as your other productions. Well, you can go to our website, adullamfilms.org, and that's spelled A-D-U-L-L-A-M, uh, films.org, or if you can't remember that, remember filmforjesus.com, filmforjesus.com. Um, and we've got we've got Eye of the Phoenix there. Actually, you can buy Eye of the Phoenix by itself if you wanted to get that, or we're offering uh, uh, a discount for those who want to get parts one, two, and three, the whole series as well. Um, 
can't, so, can't, yeah. uh, okay. Um, and uh, I highly recommend everyone, please make it a priority uh, to get these documentaries and share them with other people that you know. It will really change their, their worldview uh, when they see this. Yeah. And as always, we'll have those links also at futurequake.com. Uh, as well. So if all else fails, you've, you didn't write it down, come to futurequake.com and we'll get you to the right place uh, to, to get a hold of these. Uh, in the last minute or two, can you give us a little hint of uh, any future projects that you've got planned? Well, right now I'm working on a, another film called A Lamp in the Dark that is a whole history of the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's the first part of a three-part series, but uh, it, it goes through the history of the Bible and shows uh, the lives of the men and women who uh, you know, who risked all, who were, I think, accounted worthy to suffer uh, for the sake of the Word of God, and hmm. uh, did so so that they could bring you and I and all of us uh, a Bible that we could read. And so, as William Tyndale once said, uh, he was determined that, you know, he said, if God spare my life here these many years, I'll see to it that the boy who drives the plow uh, knows more about the Word of God. He was arguing with a particular church leader at the time. It says that the boy who drives the plow knows more of the word of God than thou dost. Uh, and, of course, he's confronting one of the religious hypocrites of that time who, you know, did not believe that the common people should have the word of God in their possession. And uh, it was men like Tyndale and others uh, who fought and laid down their lives so that we could have it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very important story because, you know, too often we take for granted what we've been given in this generation. And we don't realize the, the price uh, that our brethren who have come before us, who are Christians, uh, have paid uh, so that we could have God's word, so that we could read these things and believe them and be saved. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's ironic when, you, when you, you've, you've done a lot about the, uh, the Masons and they use this uh, square and compass as signs that they're being square and they're giving a sure foundation of good square information, and while you have exposed the fallacy of that, you've alternatively offered to your audience the, the true foundation of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And I know you have a, a, a commitment to that yeah. in all of your work, that the Word of God is the true foundation that all of this, all of these works and the actions of the others are compared against as the true standard of truth uh, yeah. in reality. And uh, I just thank you so much for making that your real commitment, that everything is looked to through the lens yeah. of the truth and the reality of Scripture. And uh, do you have another planned uh, in the series of uh, America's uh, Secret Mysteries? You know what, we, uh, uh, my partner David Bay and I, we're talking about a part four. We, we have a, a title for it um, that right now the working title is War of the World, um, mm-hmm. but we, we haven't started production on it yet. Okay. So we're, we're still in the, the planning and the thinking stage. We're really trying to get Eye of the Phoenix out there, and, mm-hmm. uh, and of course we've just released it here in the past few weeks. So. All right. Well, in the meantime, our listeners have a lot of homework they've got to catch up before you get the next one in the can. So they need to get that information out that you have, study it clearly. And uh, but lastly, uh, can I ask you, sometime could you drop in and comment on what, what things are going on in the world around us uh, yeah. beyond just simply when you've got a documentary done? Yeah, if you hear oh. anything big, give us a call. 
I would love to. I'd love to. I love coming on the show. I love hanging out and talking with you guys. So we we know of no one we we know of no one busier than you. Yeah, and we, we hate to. <laughs> it seems abuse like an you. eighty hour week yeah. is like slow, you know, we, for you. We hate to abuse you, but we'd love to have you on just to have commentary on what you see going on in the world mm-hmm. without you having to go through your whirlwind. Uh, production and promotion time and just share on other things that are that are external to some of the projects you have ongoing because we really value your perspective and what you have to say well it would be my pleasure guys definitely well thank you so much and i want to thank you so much for being on the future show future quake show again and we look forward to you for your your big highly important uh fifth visit when you join the five club here very soon all right brothers god bless you thank you, you so much and god bless you all right we're back here at future quake central with uh Commander Doc Future. And uh, Lieutenant Bionic. And uh, that was the conclusion of our interview with Chris Pinto about his documentary, Whew. I, the Phoenix, which everyone needs to get. We've only scratched the surface yeah. on the content in there. Like, that wasn't enough crazy stuff to begin it's with. It's interesting. It's interesting that the, both the Jewish rabbis and the Freemasons want that temple rebuilt. Isn't yeah. that weird? Strange bedfellows. Weird. Yeah, but it's interesting how it ties back to the rebuilt temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an, yet another way that it has prophetic implications. And he closes the documentary suggesting that uh, this dollar bill may have indications to show that the intention was for America to eventually fall, to be replaced with a global currency. Mm. And that's very chilling. That's not when good. You think about it. Stock up on rice and beans, folks. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what, right. And what's the key? Uh, and a little bit of oil. There you go. Put a little bit of oil in there because you need a lot of fat. Yeah, it's hard Or to White Castles, which you get it all anyway. <laughs> that's my, that's my like opinion. Like Cyclone B. <laughs> well, speaking of White Castles, we need to bring in Merv. Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how they can contact us here at FutureQuake? FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we're running late. Let's just get out of here. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us this week for the interview. Come back tomorrow for tomorrow's Tremors. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And this is Friday, which, here we go again, it is... Now, it's no fair. I've got, I've actually got, uh, like, a bunch of sores on my tongue, so I can't really talk so well. Is that right? I can't. This is about as loud as I can talk. Are you like those people late in the book of Revelation? No, I'm like a guy who ate too much citrus and has gotten... Some sores on the inside. And it of sounds the like mouth. to me like those people that were, you know, wizards and sorcerers at the end of Revelation. They had sores like that all over themselves, grievous sores.
Well, I mean, it's vaguely... But I mean that in a nice way. <laughs> I mean that in the best possible way. It is tomorrow's Tremors, or today's review of the Futures News. Yeah, I was going to say that. And we hope you enjoyed the interview with uh, Chris Pinto this week mm-hmm. about uh, the Eye of the Phoenix. And uh, lots of intensity and weirdness in mm-hmm. there. Uh, we've been really delivering the f- last few weeks, and we've got we've a few more weeks to go. We've been it strong, man. And this, it doesn't stop here. Uh, oh, throwing the gauntlet down, we are. Be sure and get his documentaries. You'll yeah. enjoy every one of them yeah. at adullamfilms.com mm-hmm. or uh, arfilms.org or mm-hmm. filmsforjesus.com. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's a good believer in the Lord, and I think you really enjoy. And we'd love to hear from any uh, emails you have. And that was one thing I wanted to be sure to mention on our show here. Uh, there's been a number of people that have been sending emails and uh, giving advice on guests for shows and mm-hmm. perspectives. And it's been sort of a crazy month for me. I was over in Israel and doing some additional work on some matters, a number of things I won't go into, but it's just been extremely hectic. Mm-hmm. And I have tried to get back with uh, most everybody, but there's still a few folks uh, through one distraction or another may have fallen through the cracks, and I want to apologize to you if there's anybody who I've missed. Uh, I really value your emails, and I really want them a lot, and uh, I usually just wait to hear from you. So, But if a few of them fell through a few days that just got overwhelming, I want to apologize. Please email me back, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if I don't find it through the list. I'd like to hear from you. Uh, I'd just like to know who who you are, uh, what's the Lord doing in your life, and uh, also if you have any kind of guest or topics you like or you'd like us to recommend. Yeah. Uh, next week we're going to have a guest who was kept Woo! recommended by a bunch of people, and I think you're going to really enjoy when you hear them. It's intense. The second intense. thing I want to mention is uh, our guest last week, uh, Pastor Charles Cooper. Oh, yeah. It was his first visit uh, here from uh, Pre-Rath, uh, uh, the Pre-Rath Resource Institute. Run a little special. Uh, I want to get it. Well, I want to get a hold of him and talk to him because I think he enjoyed his visit, and I t- we certainly enjoyed him mm-hmm. uh, because uh, we got a big step up in our listenership, and uh, I mean it more than doubled uh, in the days after that. Wow! And I wondered. I said, you know, I wonder if he's gotten the word out about uh, this. And sure enough, not only did he announce uh, at his uh, PreRathRapture.com site about the interview at FutureQuake. But he's now got a special going on, uh, and they said if you mention Future Quake or Dr. Future, if you're a regular listener of the show, uh, he will give you a two-for-one on his book. You can get two copies of his new book, uh, Fight, Flight, or Faith. That's cool. Uh, for Christians and the, to how to endure the tribulation period. Mm-hmm. And if you go to prerathrapture.com uh, and you go purchase the book and you... Um, uh, mention that uh, you're uh, a fan of Future Quake or Dr. Future or whatever, uh, he'll make sure you get two copies for the price of one. Wow. And I thought that's a great gesture that he did. I really yeah. appreciate it. I thought, I thought he was back. great as well, to be honest. He was really succinct, mm-hmm. very intelligent, very knowledgeable, came off. Uh, you know what I liked about him is how relaxed he was. Mm-hmm. And a wonderful speaking voice. Right, right. Great. And I'm sure he'd have a lot more to share, just like uh, Chris Pinto. Chris Pinto's another guy. Who he could go on and on. Mm-hmm. You want, you'd learn all sorts of things yeah. on the show, a natural on our show. We're just going to have to go to a 16-hour-a-day format. I think we may do that. Yeah. Just go from dawn to dusk, <laughs> one future quake all the time. Yeah. <laughs> just nestle them all the time. We'd have to like do the show in shifts. Like you do eight hours and then sleep, and I'll do eight uh-huh. hours. And It'd be sleep. like the Jerry Lewis telethon all the time. Yeah, except like way less cheesy. Well, I don't even know about that. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank uh, Pastor Cooper, and yeah. I hope you're listening yeah. here. Uh, I hope you tolerate us. Um, yeah. 
uh, he certainly brought a lot of class yeah. to we our felt, show, we like felt, most of our guests. We felt honored to have you on if you are listening. And, That's right. Uh, we look forward to your return. And we'd like to have you come back and teach us some more. And same yeah. thing with Chris Pinto and mm. just about all of our guests we feel mm-hmm. the same way about. Yeah. Uh, would you like to start us with a story? You know, why don't you start us? You sure? Yeah, I started, right. I've started the last couple times. So okay. It's your turn. I'll bring something a little different to the table here. Yeah. Mm, um, different. This is from Eric Young of the Christian Post Reporter. Uh, the uh, title is Billy Graham Association Makes End Times a Focus in 2009. This year, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association will focus on the return of Jesus Christ and help prepare believers for life in the last days, mm. according to a recent announcement. People ask me, do you really believe that Jesus is going to come back to this earth again, writes the Reverend Billy Graham in one of the several resources that the ministry is providing on the end times. Yes, I do, he continues. The Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again, and I don't see any other hope because we're heading toward a catastrophe in our world. As part of its effort, the ministry has compiled a number of end times resources, including a message delivered by Graham in 1998, a 2008 message from uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association President and CEO Franklin Graham, an article adapted from a message delivered by Ann Graham Lotz in 1996, an End Times article on the basics of the Second Coming, and a couple of Q&As with Billy Graham that includes a question on whether the world will end in 2009. The most important question, however, is this. Are you ready for Christ's return? Graham writes after offering his response. Mm -hmm. The BGEA, or Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, is hoping that through its compilation of resources on the Second Coming of Christ, believers will learn how they can fulfill God's plan for their life, increase their love for the Savior, and grow their faith during these times as if it were their last days. Mm. If that happens today, are you ready, Graham poses. The world's renowned evangelist also reminds believers that regardless of when Christ returns, the end of the world does come for each and every single person the moment that they die. And that could be at any time for any of us. We never know, Graham states. What have you done to prepare for that moment when your heart stops beating? The latest effort of the BGEA comes just a few months after Graham celebrated his 90th birthday and ahead of the 100th birthday celebration of George Beverly Shea who for decades uh, was the musical mainstay at Graham's Evangelistic Crusades. Hmm. It also comes one year before the ministry marks its 60th anniversary. Interesting. I find it interesting yeah. that they, why did they choose now to do it? Well, Is there something that they've been led by the Lord to think that needs to be a priority yeah. now for, like, what curious reason? We'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I need to call my friend Billy and ask him to come yeah, on the show and you know, talk to him about it. We, yeah, we haven't talked to him in a couple of weeks. You know, it's been a couple of weeks since they had him on. the fat with him. He loves tomorrow's tremors. Big fan, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he loves anything with Nephilim in it. His ministry reflects that. <laughs> I don't know why, but he, he, he'll email me. More yeah. Nephilim. Yeah. You know? Yeah. More antediluvian topics. Well, you know, there's that big, uh, it just says Christian, but I think the the idea is that it's Billy Graham down there in uh, downtown Nashville, out in front of Lifeway Books. There's that big. It's not him. It's a statue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's in not that or him. he's standing real still. Yeah, and I, he's and he would be a Nephilim size because isn't it like extra large? Yeah. It's weird. It's kind of kind of evil looking at night. Mm-hmm. I went down there with a couple of brothers. I'm, and sure, and we were like, I'm Whoa. sure all the friends, <laughs> friends uh, and fans of Billy Graham appreciate yeah, the and now, kind of evil Now that looking. I've completely crashed our uh, listenership. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, we hear him just disappearing. Yeah. Radio's Give turning a call, off. Billy. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to, yeah. to bag on you. Do you mean like they play the instruments and like the... The lyre and the harp. Everyone has to go bow in front of it, like in the Book of Daniel. Is that what you're? Well, buying? I didn't. I didn't really see all that, but uh, uh, I did see some people dealing drugs out there. So that was really weird. That was really. Yeah, it was across the street. Huh. That's interesting. 
Indeed. I don't know what to say to that. You caught me speechless yes, there. It, no, well, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a statue I would hope it's a fluke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, before we get in any more trouble, you got a story for us? Yeah, here's a nice uplifting one. Okay. Uh, this one comes from the uh, Financial Which is what we're known for. Yeah, this one comes from the Financial Times. Uh, Iceland government collapses. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, 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 regular listeners may recall I've been reporting on the fact that Iceland had been uh, basically in complete chaos and had been reported on in the news. Here's finally, you know, a newsworthy page three item. The the government of Iceland has collapsed. Um, the coalition government government of Iceland collapsed Monday under the pressures of a financial meltdown, and Prime Minister Gerhard said he would hand in his resignation to President Olaf Olafur Ragnar Grimson. Who was that again? Olafur Gr- Ragnar Grimson. Oh, yeah, him, okay. Yeah. I really regret that we could not continue with this coalition, he said to the Parliament building. I believe that that, that would have been the best result. Foreign Minister Inge Bjorg Gisladolter. <laughs> that was, that was, that's a, actually pretty good, I think. Yeah. The Social Democrat leader, who had been considered a potential replacement for Hardy, announced that she would not seek to be prime minister and would leave a, and take a leave of absence for one or two months. Hard's government, a coalition between his independent party and the Social Democrat Alliance, has been under pressure since the global financial crisis hit Iceland in October, causing the collapse of its banks following by a decade-long boom fueled by cheap foreign funding. I will go to the president and hand in the government's resignation, Hardy said. Then I will have a meeting with the opposition leaders to discuss the possibility of a national unity government. He said he had hoped someone from his party could lead a unity government, but one analyst said he thought the public would demand change. This is not unexpected, and at least it is the end of the pain politically, Lars Christensen, head of emerging market research at Danske Bank, said. I would would view it as as good news because it should give us more clarity rather than less. Obviously, the, less, the left wing is likely to get a very good showing in the election. The likely verdict of the Icelandic people is that they will want the current government well out of the way. Polls show coalition parties trailing the opposition left Green Party, indicating that a shift in, the, in power is likely. Which, none of that really solves that economic crisis they're having, no, does it? No, of course not. It's just they found somebody to string up. <clears throat> well, they strung up one guy, and now they're going to give the, another party a... A good run at it. Um, I mean, you know, one of the things that hasn't been reported in the mainstream media is that, you know, for weeks on end, there was a gathering of thousands of people out in front of the All Thing, which is their mm-hmm. parliament building. And that's where they do All Things. Yeah. Yeah. Especially government-related. Right. Um, and anytime somebody would emerge of note, they would throw toilet paper, shoes, snowballs uh, hmm. at them. And hmm. some, guy even, some guy even shinnied up to the... Uh, she meet up to the uh, uh, the second story with a banner. It said, no IMF, no World Bank. Wow. Yeah. Now, uh, just to put this in context as well for our listeners, mm-hmm. these protests are actually going on all over the world right now, and yes. are just for some bizarre reason not being reported by our media. Yeah. You, well, you've got... The countries all over the world. Yeah. Well, you've got uh, a million a million man protest there in France that was multi-day. You've got... Uh, there was a 20,000-person riot in Pakistan... Uh, on the, you know, somebody tried to burn, 20,000 people tried to burn down the uh, the parliament building there, the, the head of government. Uh, Greece has been in riots for weeks. 
There's riots in the Ukraine. There's riots in Belarus. On and on. There's about mm. 20 different countries where people are rioting over this uh, economic problem. But other than that, it's okay. Other than that, it's all rosy. Yeah. Wow. Weather was nice today. Would you like a <laughs> Would you like another story? Yeah. Just something this has a European, This also has a European flavor. It's yeah. from that general sphere mm, of the world. European. Uh, this is uh, from Ed Balls. Minister fears rise of fascism amid economic bloom. Gloom, excuse me. This is from the Telegraph over in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, an economic crisis could spark a resurgence in the far right, a close ally of Gordon Brown, their, their prime minister, wow. suggested. Uh, Ed Balls, the Children's and School Secretary, uh, said the downturn is likely to be the most serious for 100 years, and its comments appeared to raise the prospect of return to the far right politics of the 30s and the rise of fascism. Sure. His warning in a speech to activists at the weekend came after a trade union baron warned that the far-right parties were trying to hijack the campaign for British jobs for British workers. The row over foreign workers has gathered momentum in recent weeks, and Mr. Balls seems to suggest the recession could trigger a return to the far-right politics that prospered in the Great Depression of the 30s, which, again, was a worldwide, not just a yeah, U.S. depression. It's very interesting that, that we're talking about this, the uh, the K-wave cycles, which uh, we've talked about a little bit mm-hmm. here, you know, the Condra, Nikolai Kondratiev and his various long-wave cycles of economic that's, stuff. That's like what you would see in the stock market, reflected yes. in the stock market yeah, patterns. Yeah, we had talked about this, I think, about a year ago, that we were going to see the beginnings of this, and now people must listen to the future quick, even Gordon Brown. I imagine he is. In fact, Gordon, we just like to say hey to you out there. Now he's our analysis, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> most of the, like the Bohemian Grove people listen really yeah. to Maybe the future quick. Maybe we could do quick. a conference call with Billy and, and Gordon. See what see what they all can mess something out. Well, if they're if they're together, that yeah. would even make it easier. Yeah. Uh, he told uh, this fellow told Labor's Yorkshire conference, the economy is going to define our politics in this region and in Britain in the next year, the next five years, the next ten, even the next fifteen. I think that this is a financial crisis more extreme and more serious than that of the 1930s. Duh. And we all remember now. Most people don't wouldn't. Understand that most people are living today like there's no tomorrow. You're right. Not the future. Just start not our future they're, quake they're, they're, they, They're well taught. They know better. Yeah. And we all remember how the politics of that era were shaped by the economy. Yep. The remarks are significant because Mr. Balls was a key advisor to Mr. Brown during his decade as at the Treasury Department. There, mm-hmm. he said he believed this to be the most serious global recession in over a hundred years. Uh, we are now seeing the realities of globalization, though at a speed, pace, and ferocity which none of us have seen before. Mm-hmm. The reality is that this has become the most serious global recession for, I'm sure, over 100 years, mm-hmm. as it will turn out. Uh, last week, Derek Simpson, the general secretary of Unite, gave warning that far-right elements were hijacking a campaign against foreign firms bringing in non-British workers. Mm-hmm. He said, we're deeply concerned that other organizations like the BNP are latching onto the movement for their own racist racist agenda. Mm. Last night, George Osborne, the shadow chancellor, which is, I didn't know there was such the a person. shadow first, chancellor? That's a character. They, I mean, that's Whoa. the position of the shadow government. Said Mr. Ball's comments were at odds with Treasury forecast, suggesting a recovery in the third quarter this year. All right. They well, have the same nitwits there as they do in the U.S. I know. Sounds like uh, Geithner's there. Uh, yeah, he said there. this is a staggering and very worrisome admission from a cabinet minister and Gordon Brown's closest ally in the Treasury over the last 10 years. We are told that not only are we facing the worst recession in 100 years, but that it will last over a decade, uh, which is far longer than the Treasury forecasts predict. Uh, at this time of recession, a cabinet rift over the economy would be deeply damaging. 
So I won't I won't go on. You get the uh, get the gist of it. The mm. bottom line that is reliving is that this economic crisis is going to affect every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. It's going to cause extremes in politics. Mm-hmm. It's causing uh, groups to fall apart. Now this their party is mm-hmm. falling apart. They don't trust each other. And if you go back, and we mentioned this last time, you remember uh, that Ambrose, uh, Richard, Richard, uh, Pritchard, Pritchard Ambrose, Richard's... Yeah, the guy that we read the stories. Just reorganized yeah. with three names. Yeah. Um, he, he's a regular on here. Uh, he was saying he was a comparing what's going on now to the 1930s. And basically there's all sorts of extreme political movements that happened. Mm-hmm. Fascism, we, we had big Nazi marches going down Washington, D.C. back in the 30s. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had mm-hmm. Nazi flags waving, you know, and this is the way. There was like a new political party coming in the U.S. Yeah. Well, at the time, and at the time, they didn't see it as a big, as a big deal. It's like, oh, hey, you know, well, they Nazis saw fascism cool. as working because the trains are on time. It was working well in Italy. Mm-hmm. There was there was stability, whereas we had economic instability mm-hmm. at our place, which the New Deal exacerbated. It's interesting that pragmatism is such a strangely American thing. You know, we've been lucky so far that all the things that we've been oddly pragmatic about, like Nazis. Uh, a Nazist movement hasn't really taken root here. It took root somewhere else, and we went, whoa. Well, it was taking root here. Some people even said that uh, uh, well, you know, Lindbergh Henry, was sympathetic to it. Well, sure, and Henry Ford made no bones about right. it, you know, funding that, both that and eugenics, and mm-hmm. you know, along with uh, John Maynard Keynes. And so maybe we just do it underground a little bit more. Uh, well, I mean, there's, yeah, maybe. I mean, we did send our military out to shoot our uh, our own uh, war veterans yeah, in World War Patton, I. Patton, his... Uh, yeah. Uh, finest hour there. But you know what? I, I think when you talk about pragmatism, it, maybe it's the fact that we're passive and we sit on our hands, unlike our uh, forebears in the revolution. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, having been a little bit of a world traveler, it seems to me that Americans are some hardworking people by and large. And I think well, probably what happens... Compared to Europeans, not maybe not compared to Japanese, but compared to Europeans. Well, yeah, yeah, but I think the point is, is that, you know, we work pretty hard, and uh, we come home and we're tired. We don't want to do anything. We're too tired to cause a revolution. Yeah. Yeah. You say you want a revolution. I knew you were going to do that. Well, I just want well, you know. a nap. <laughs> well, do you have a story for us? Going to snooze in the back seat. Well, everything turns to insanity. You know you're on a radio show. Are these mics on? <laughs> <laughs> Give us a story about plague if you got one. Okay. Funny. Here, let me. Oh, okay, hey, yeah. here's one. Uh, plague-infested mice missing from New Jersey Research Lab. You know, this is like the most encouraging story we have of the day. Yeah. Well, you know, and the reason I brought this one is I figured you were going to do one about the uh, the uh, bird flu, but you didn't. You just sort of had a feeling I was going to do that? Well, it's such a newsworthy item. That I'm not behind, behind the news. Oh, I was going to do one about the well, moon landing. Well, let's, let, me talk about the, okay. let me talk about the mice, and maybe we can talk about the bird flu. Too. Yeah, okay. Um, the frozen remains of two mice infected with the bubonic plague are missing from a New Jersey bioterror research facility. And the facility waited seven weeks to report the incident to federal and state authorities. Nice. Officials with the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey and Newark, where the remains went missing, and FBI officials said the missing mice posed no public health threat. Of course. What are they doing with plague? Yeah. What's, what? what's the purpose of University of Medicine and Dentistry? That's what I'm wondering. You know, dentists need the plague to do what? <laughs> research with. Yeah, if they gave it to kids, it wouldn't be so bad, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the same facility where three live plague-infected mice went missing in September 2005. 
Officials concluded those mice died. How? After killing millions of people. Yeah. The frozen mice were noticed missing when an animal care supervisor went to prepare them for sterilization and incineration, the New Jersey Star-Ledger reported. University officials still think the remains were incinerated earlier, but lack the records to prove it. University officials say they contacted the FBI, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and state health officials when they realized the dead mice were unaccounted for. So, if they already had one of those incidents happen before, something that deadly to the population, they didn't put any kind of special procedures in where, like, somebody would be double-checking that? You know, it's the, it's, it's the University of Medicine and Dentistry. Yeah. And, uh, you know. I'm afraid even to get my teeth clean now, much less the plague. <laughs> This, I could look over in the little spit cup, and there could be a dead plague mouse in there. This story raises so many crazy, crazy what ifs that I almost. Yeah. I What's almost it doing on a show like a, a mainstream I, show like ours? I don't know. Like, how come it took them seven weeks to report it? How come two mice, dead mice, are infected? How did they know that the mice died? How did they? Why did they think the remains were incinerated earlier? Why? <laughs> Who? What? Where? How? <laughs> Oh, don't mind us. We're just well, going to infect the whole populace. I hope you were able to... Uh, hey, you want some pizza? Yeah. I hope you were able to clarify a lot of things with that story and yeah. really made things clearer for us. I'm here for you. Uh, we don't have much time, so okay. like Jack Bauer would say on 24. Uh, so uh, let me just say real quick something I want you all to pray about. Um, it says, uh, this is from Reuters in Kabul. Uh, uh, it says, no one knows who brought the book to the mosque, or no one dare say. The pocket-sized translation of the Quran has already landed six men in prison in Afghanistan and left two of them begging judges to spare their lives. They're accused of modifying the Quran, and their fate could be decided Monday in court. Uh, the trial illustrates what critics call the undue influence of hardline clerks in Afghanistan. Uh, the book appeared among gifts left for a cleric at a major Kabul mosque after Friday prayers in September 2007. It was a translation of the Quran into one of Afghanistan's languages, with a note giving permission to reprint the text as long as it was distributed for free. Some of the men of the mosque said the book would be useful to Afghans who didn't know Arabic, so they took up a collection for printing. The mosque cleric asked uh, this friend to get the books printed. But as some thousand copies made their way to conservative Muslim clerics in Kabul, whispers began. The clerics rejected the book because it did not include the original Arabic verses alongside the translation. It's a particularly sensitive detail for Muslims who regard the uh, Arabic Quran as words directly given by God. A translation is not considered a Quran itself, and a mistranslation would warp God's word. Hmm. Odd, because so, they usually don't let most people read it. Really? Yeah. They have huge laws against Oh, yeah. You mean like the Catholics? Like where they wouldn't let people read the Bible? Yeah, very much like that, huh. actually. Wow. Like if you don't like, if they don't want you to, yeah. If you're if you're a normal guy, you don't get to read the Quran. In the last minute, can I say a quick prayer for these guys that are on sure. trial for their lives? Absolutely. I'm going to pray that the Lord is going to appear to them, or he sent somebody, mm-hmm. and tell them that they're going to have deliverance with Jesus Christ, if that's all right. Since right. we are a Christian show, although it's hard to tell on our new segment sometimes. It's a little loony, but we're, we love Jesus let, here. Let me, let me do that. Heavenly Father, I lift these gentlemen up who were trying to be helpful to their fellow citizens. Lord, they were in darkness. They didn't know you. They didn't know who you are as the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. Mm-hmm. Lord, they were trying to be helpful, and they found out what their own religion will do to them. And, Lord, there's no mercy uh, in their group, no grace. Lord, mm. show them your mercy and your grace. Let this be an opportunity that they could find uh, 
the true Savior of their life and that they could actually in their desire to submit to God, they would find truly who God is and a true one to submit uh, who would lend a hand of comfort and a hand of deliverance to them. Lord, I pray that this miracle would happen and we could praise you when we hear it happen. It would cause a great revival. I pray for their for their uh, salvation. I pray for their personal protection and that of their families. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's see what happens. Yeah. Well, speaking of clerics, why don't we have Merv come in and tell our <laughs> listeners how they can contact us here at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, it's the end of the road. What a crazy cleric. <laughs> Any last words? Uh, my tongue still hurts. Please, please, please pray for me. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it. Pray for him. Yep. Uh, until then, we'll have a great guest next week, a really great yeah, one. Looking forward to him. And until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a great day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 Let the old world make believe It's blind to death